nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn. Boridar Pal, Kroisoi Abitao, hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to the Twilight Show with me, Nathan Ginn, the Teacher's Talk Radio, and tonight we're talking reading with Christopher Such, author of Teacher uh, teacher of the Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading, and Tara Cross, teacher and Instagram-based book aficionado. Welcome to the show, let's go. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boridar Pab, Kroisoy Abatawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea. Um, absolutely tongue-twisted myself in the start there um and we have a call i'm just going to check who it is so uh username t-r-h-s-w-e-m-v can you hear me i can indeed it's me chris such oh hi chris yeah i wasn't sure there for a second um saw the username and i I took a gamble and luckily it was you uh apologies for absolutely mangling the name of your book there in my defense it's quite a long name to the book i will say Um, yeah apologies for that i will try again so teacher and author of the art and science of teaching primary reading chris such welcome to the show it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Fabulous. And we are expecting, hopefully, uh, Tara Cross um, at underscore Tara's teaching to join us as well. So I'll keep an eye out for you, Tara. If you're joining the studio, um, just uh, uh, click the call in button. Or, of course, if you're a listener and uh, you're listening in, you can call in with questions as well, or you can text them into the box. Um I always introduce the show, um, Chris, with like a little bit of an update on the weather here. I am in Swansea and it is raining. It is, it's been raining now for what seems like an eternity here. It is always raining. Um, where are you based, Chris? I'm uh, based in Peterborough and fortunately the weather it seemingly is relatively pleasant. I'm, I'm stunned to hear that it's raining in Wales. Stunned. It, uh, I know it is absolutely shocking. What you'll also notice, Chris, is that my my accent there is um, slightly south of where you're at. But Peterborough, you know, I I am aware of. I do know because I I grew up just down the road in Cambridge, um, and and we would have been mortal football enemies. Are you a football fan? I am indeed. Yeah, I'm I'm already embarrassed about the um, defamatory language that I must have thrown at you and your football team over the years. Yeah. Um, so I am a football fan. So a long standing rivalry between Peterborough and Cambridge. We, we've gone our separate ways in the leagues uh, over the years, though, thankfully. Yeah. You know, as I say, you know, I'm not a massive football fan, but I, it was bred into me by the family that, you know, this was um, the rivalry, the, the the local derby. But yeah, as I say, now I'm down in, in wet south Wales um 
and 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 it's wet all the time here, and it is a big difference from being over in the Fens in Cam- near Cambridge, where it's very flat, very dry, very wet, very mountainous here. Um, we have another caller in now. I'm hoping this is Tara. I have connected her. So, Tara, can you hear us? Hello. Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Fabulous. Welcome. Uh, Welcome to Teach Already. I was just um, slightly, um, you you know, probing uh, Chris there about football because he's from Peterborough. Yes. Uh, Obviously a little problem. Um, Where are you from, Tara? Uh, Near Cambridge. Uh, We're ganging up on you, Chris. (laughs) We are. Um, so I, I have loaded it just to, you know, just to be fair that, you know, we've got Tara here, um, who is uh, from Cambridge, amazingly, purely coincidental, I should say. It's not a deliberate uh, football rivalry uh, show that I've set up. It is about reading. We're going to be talking about reading. But first, I think if we just kind of uh, introduce yourselves to the listeners, if you would, please, um, Chris. Uh, briefly, I'm yeah, I'm Christopher Such. I've been in primary education for roughly 15 years. Um, I'm currently a senior leader at a very large primary school in inner city Peterborough. Um, I do bits and pieces of work for ITT providers, and um, yeah, as has already been described, I've recently written a book. But uh, en- enough about me. I think uh, you get the gist. No, fabulous and a wonderful uh, introduction there just uh, to kind of get us to know where you're coming from and your perspectives. Um, Tara, can you do the same for us? Let's know a little bit about yourself. Hello, yeah, I'm Tara. So uh, I'm, I was an NQT last year, so I'm in my RQT year now. Uh, obviously, that was slightly disrupted by COVID. So it's been a bit of a crazy time training and then doing my NQT year. Uh, but yeah, I work in uh, year five in a small rural primary school, kind of on the soft Suffolk, Norfolk border. Um, and this year, I am now my school's reading lead. Fabulous stuff. Now, uh, Tara, I did introduce you. I, I, the words I used, and I did completely mess up almost all the words in my introduction, um, but I described you as an Instagram-based book aficionado. How do you feel about that as a description? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll take that. That's fine. Yeah, I do uh, promote it a lot on my uh, teacher Instagram. So, yeah, definitely. <laughs> sharing books books for people to that you know uh, I guess um advice recommendations those kind of yeah things. definitely yeah write loads of book reviews on there children's books um kind of talk about a lot about what I'm reading with my class and what they love so yeah and I guess as always I better set the scene for myself as well for anyone listening uh myself um was a primary based teacher was a deputy head in primary schools recently moved um to um south wales to teach alternative provision and strangely find myself um with a reading problem or you know a conundrum of how to approach reading so a few different angles there and i guess that's my first question for for both of you is i, I put out a question about two-thirds of teachers who responded not a lot responded but two-thirds of them said that reading in some form was on their school improvement plan whether primary or secondary does that surprise you why do you think that is let's start with chris it doesn't surprise me, frankly. Well, actually, no, I'll say it does surprise me that there's only two thirds. I'm surprised it's not basically every school in the country. And I suspect mm-hmm. it might be if uh, people del- delve into the, the weeds of their school improvement plans, perhaps. I mean, it, it really has to be because of just its level of importance. It's 
beyond safeguarding, it's, I would say, inarguably the most important thing that we teach, that we um, deal with in schools. It's the most important thing, I would argue, that we teach because of the way that it allows children to connect with the world that they're going to exist in as they as they as they develop. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm going to take that as quite a, a functional answer. That you know, you're talking about the functional skills of of reading and interacting with not only the world but the, their other subjects as well. I guess, um, Tara, what do you think about why why do our schools seeing reading as so important? Um, I think at the moment, I think because of COVID and having the lockdowns and children missing so much school, I think that's really kind of shown where the gaps are um, in children's learning. And I think for us as a school, I know reading has particularly been highlighted as a huge gap now. Um, it's a shame because obviously I, I feel that we we are pushing it so much and we want them to have a love for reading. So it's kind of now getting that balance of needing to help them with those skills, but also, you know, helping to encourage them to enjoy it as well. Um, and I know also with Ofsted, um, it will be a deep dive. So I think that's also quite a big factor as well. Yeah, ever a driving force is Ofsted, unfortunately, whether rightly or wrongly, it is ever ever a driving force in what we do. But I, I would say this um, to you, Tara, I would say, you know, and I've been in teaching 10, 15 years, almost every school that I've been in, in that history, 10, 15 years worth, reading has always been a problem, I think. Reading has always at least been a perceived problem in some form. And so I've got a question around that about why it's always a problem. But then also when we talk about uh, the, the the impact of COVID, I guess I'd have a question from there about um, why don't, you know, people learn to read before uh, and, and is it has what reading is changed? Has uh, parents' ability to teach reading? Are we talking about different things? So it takes me on to my next question. And we'll, we'll go to each of you in turn, I guess, which is, what is what is reading chris what 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 are we talking about there's a that's a massive question and i'll get to each part of that in turn. i'll try and give you the 20 20 second version first and you're more than welcome to kind of probe a bit further from that at its mo at its core reading is the construction of meaning from written symbols. Now that, that is an exceptionally, I'll use the word that you used to describe it, it's an exceptionally functional way of thinking about reading, but it is as broad and as deep as one's uh, understanding of the word construction and meaning and can sp can spread to mean um, as, as much as we, as we want it to. I'd like to very quickly address the question that you mentioned before about this idea of um, has reading changed? Have people learned to read before the methods that are commonly promoted now. I think it's a really fascinating um, question and a really a, one that comes up a lot when I'm speaking to parents and speaking to teachers. Effectively, what is in place now in schools in, in terms of things like systematic phonics and in some cases fluency practice and other relatively evidence-informed uh, ways of dealing with reading, in a lot of cases, these are things that have always been taught to some extent but not with the level of, not necessarily all the time, with the level of planning and often support that teachers can get from what exists currently. So while things have changed, it's often the case that the way things were before wasn't actually that different in certain areas. 
Um, I do think there's been major changes in terms of things like systematic synthetic phonics, but it's also the case that pretty much anyone who learned to read, even from my generation, when no one would have heard of systematic synthetic phonics as one component of reading, we all would have had some elements of phonics. And again, we can dig into that a little bit more, but I'll, um, I'll, I'll draw that to a close there so that Tara has a chance to answer your question as well. Yeah. Okay. And, and and Tara, when when I say reading, or when you hear someone say, you know, uh, they they love reading, they're good at reading, or um, maybe we need to improve reading, what's what's the things that come to your head? Um, I think that, again, as Chris said, there's so much to it. It's such a a broad thing. Um, but I would say, you know, it's kind of looking at those comprehension skills, kind of understanding. Um, a text and being able to decode exactly what they have read. Um, I always remember on my PGCE, one of our tutors showed us this fantastic video of their nephew sat with a book. They were only about two, maybe three years old. Um, so obviously they were kind of only just starting to learn to look at letters and read and they were just flicking through a book and they were just looking at the pictures and picking out different things and saying oh look it's a dog and I think even that to me is reading them being able to retrieve information just from pictures um, being able to kind of construct a meaning around it um, retrieve all that yeah I think it's such a broad topic but yeah I think even that to me is included in reading and obviously then you've also got the side of enjoying it and having a love for books um yeah and wanting to get the most out of um reading as well yeah i mean we do throw around the word a lot a love of reading that that gets thrown around a lot and and i wonder if we're then talking about something different or if we're talking about it and also i have always had like a really broad sense of reading and maybe from being a geographer you know, sort of a young age and liking data and, and graphs and things as well. I always kind of had a kind of idea of reading as understanding as in, it's even hard for me to explain. And I guess that was a profession. Maybe we're having problems as well. Um, Chris, did you want to jump in there? Did you? I do indeed. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely the case that we use the word read, that we use the word reading for a variety of different purposes, say when we are reading someone's mind or um, mm, reading yeah. um, body reading language, painting. you say. Indeed, and we get closer and closer to kind of a technical and I would say more worthwhile description of what reading is when we get closer to things like reading a picture book. Um, when we get into kind of the what a teacher usually means when we're talking, say, with a parent and saying that this child is struggling with reading or is excelling at reading or loves to read, what we're generally talking about is um, two components really, or at least two components as defined by uh, the simple view of reading, which is a particularly valuable framework for understanding reading. Effectively, we can think of reading as having these, in, under this framework, as having these two components, decoding, or I should say word recognition and language comprehension. If I may, I'll just quickly unpack that a little bit because without, it, it can be quite difficult to kind of wrap your head around, even though it's the simple view of reading. If, if I imagine, for example, when I come to um, write a note to somebody, what I'm effectively doing is taking, and again, I apologize to the linguistic philosophers in the audience, but I'm effectively taking the thoughts that are in my head, converting them into words that I would usually speak. And then I'm taking those words and I'm encoding them in some kind of permanent or semi-permanent form on 
a written on a written surface. So it could be a laptop, it could be etc. If we think of those two steps, reading is effectively the reverse of that process, uh, where we can think of it as well. First, I've got the the, the, the encoded symbols that are on the page i have first have to decode those to effectively get the words back and and then i have to construct meaning from those words so i have to think about the order of them what the words individually mean i have to think about their context in order to kind of build meaning now i'm careful to say construct build or construct meaning rather than reconstruct because obviously, if you're reading um, a book by an author, you might not construct, as it were, the exact meaning that they potentially intended. But it might be that the meaning that you construct from that text is still worthwhile. And I'm sure people who are interested in literature might have a different uh, way of thinking about things, about the, the, the art of um, looking into, into reading on that level. And what I mean by that is this idea of if it, it, do you need to construct the exact meaning that the author intended, assuming that they meant something? But in short, we can think of reading as having these two components, this word recognition and this language comprehension. And when we're talking about reading in the sense of school and strengths and weaknesses and literacy and illiteracy, what we're usually talking about are the combination of these two processes that, that um, interweave to allow for fluent reading. And so I guess that takes us, you know, nicely towards our classroom, you know, our expectations of what reading is. And it would be generally, to say, of my experience, that we tend to start thinking of decoding lower down the school at a younger age. We start off maybe decoding with some meaning and, and then we transition or certainly there was an expectation when I uh, in in the early years of my teaching, certainly, where as we moved up the school, we focused more and more on, um, as you say, authorial intent, um, understanding, comprehension type elements. Um, T- um, Tara, is that kind of how you find it as a teacher now at the moment? Is is that something you recognise me describing that? Yeah, definitely. And obviously, I work in Upper Key Stage 2 in Year 5. So, yeah, it's definitely kind of looking at those key skills. We um, we look at vipers. Um, so, yeah, a lot of retrieval. Um, those kind of skills are really key and the main things that we teach. And can I ask you, Tara, as, you know, as a current teacher, I hear readers, and admittedly I'm working with children who are much older, but they have a reading age that's much younger, but I hear um, them read, like a, they have a book and I hear them read and listen to them reading. Is that something you do in an upper key stage? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's still really important because although we know that so many of them can read, it's them still then having those skills of fluency and being able to have expression in their voice. Um, that's often something that they lack. Um, we do a lot of echo reading, um, which if you don't know, is where the teacher reads um, a few words um, using expression and then uh, the class or the child you may be reading with, they then repeat it back to you um, using you know, the same intonation, the same tone of voice, the same expression. Um, just to then teach them how to read with that expression rather than it being so monotonous. Um, yeah, so that's something we work on quite a lot in Upper Key Stage 2. Um, and I think really across Key Stage 2, that's really important. 
And I guess I'd throw that back to Chris then. And I know I'm, I'm just really conscious, guys, that we're, we're all kind of primary colleagues here and we get listeners who are secondary and certainly I'm secondary now who might want to pick this apart. So I'm trying to um, kind of make sure we're as kind of crystal as, as possible with what when we're explaining practicing primary school. Um, but how does that oracy then element of it, I guess, Chris, how do you see that fitting in? Because we're, we're not only decoding meaning, but there is an element of, particularly with poetry, where you're decoding a, a an intended performance, I guess, or an intended oracy of it. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I will come back to the uh, the, the, the oracy, if I may, as because it links to kind of what you said earlier. You were asking, you mentioned about the idea of um, is it that we focus mainly on decoding further down the school? And while there is a strong emphasis on decoding through. In England, it's mandated that we have systematic synthetic phonics and yep. there are programs that we use as a way of specifically teaching the rudiments of decoding. It's also the case that um, EYFS and Key Stage 1 and, of course, Key Stage 2 teachers will be doing all sorts of things that support that other side of things. So I mentioned about the two aspects of the simple view of reading. So we talked about word recognition, which is, to a large extent at least, decoding, but also the language comprehension. When teachers are reading stories to children, when they are, and this comes back to your second point, developing children's oracy, their vocabulary, their knowledge of the world, all of this is supporting the language comprehension that makes up the, like the other component that combines with decoding to make um, fluent reading. So in terms of oracy, it's, it's certainly the case that supporting children's oracy or that the skills that underpin oracy are often tightly linked with reading because vocabulary, knowledge, etc. The other thing I'd say is you were talking about the idea of performance and uh, Tara was quite right there to really focus on the idea of um, prosody, the idea of um, that reading sounds like a natural spoken voice. It has the, cor uh, the correct sense of tone and melody, intonation, emphasis, rhythm that comes from a natural spoken voice. I'd just like to kind of just make a point on there that naturally it is still the case that while oracy is tightly linked and should be developed and will support reading, it is of course the case that some children who perhaps um, cannot uh, speak can still learn to read. So there are um, there, there is a, a link between the skills that, and skills and the knowledge that support both, but it isn't so um, tightly wrapped up that the teaching of oracy is exactly the same thing as the teaching of reading, though it does support it. And I, well, you know, I guess all of this leads us um, really to 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 my um, initial question of, you know, why is everyone worried about reading almost all of the time? This is incredibly complex kind of stuff, and you know, I, as I say, I um, trained as a primary teacher certainly a long time ago now. But I was a geography graduate, and so I did a PGCE. And there, you know, we're talking about quite complicated and intense stuff. And I'll give an example. I only found out a week ago that the reason Mrs. has a um, an R in it um, when when written as a as a shortened form is because it was mistress. And I'd been teaching that as a sight word for ten years, and it had never come up. You know, there, there, there's an, a, a ridiculous amount of Mitty gritty here that that maybe gets skated over with what seems like a simple concept. 
Sorry, Chris, do you think... Sorry, no, I'm happy to jump back in there. Yeah, um, indeed. Um, I think reading is arguably the most complicated aspect of um, a primary teacher's development. Uh, I think generally it it would be very easy for me to sit here and to complain about um, my teacher training. Um, As far as I'm aware, I think I trained at the same place as Tara. I don't think I don't have any particular complaints about it. What I would say is that it isn't a subject that can be learned in a very short period of time. So there is a responsibility on schools, excuse me, there is a responsibility on schools to ensure that there is a a continuing sense of professional development. There's, I mean, for example, the, the process of orthographic learning and part of that orthographic mapping are absolutely essential elements of learning to read and teachers not knowing about these and understanding them so that they have the vocabulary to talk about them with the other teachers in their school is unfortunate and it's as great a lack as the fact that you know primary teachers might not know what supertizing is in mathematics they are these are key parts of teachers professional development that need to be put in place in schools um, in order to support teachers to be um, better teachers but in short it is an exceptionally complex subject from the development of sight word recognition um, via processes like orthographic mapping to orthographic learning to all of the different elements that underpin language comprehension the frustrating thing about all of this is that there is and has been for a long time a relatively stable consensus about what reading is how certain elements of it can be best taught and yet it is taking its time to be translated into uh, primary practice. I want to throw across to Tara as the, the the youngest, obviously, I say youngest, you might, you know, certainly the most recently trained. Uh, and Tara, you can talk as generally as you like, if you don't want to talk about your own um, experience of teacher training. But having, you know, access to, I guess, a lot of people seeking your advice and support through some of the things you do on Instagram. What's your opinion of how much training people are receiving on reading at the moment in their early in their career yeah I mean I can definitely speak about my own experience um because I'm sure it's quite similar to uh, many others um but yeah for my course you know we we had the um we had English sessions each week when we were at um university in those kind of block weeks um and we were obviously taught quite a bit about reading it was really a main focus alongside writing um but I will say it's definitely not enough um I then obviously came into teaching in my NQT year obviously my PGC was disrupted so that did affect everything um but yeah walking into my NQT year then having to actually plan these reading lessons and really know what to do where to start was really challenging um so yeah I ended up obviously having to seek a lot of advice from other teachers at my school and the reading lead at the time um and yeah it was tough and I don't think there really is enough training on it initially um I'm now obviously seeking out courses um so that I can go on them to help develop myself and I still do think that um, teachers at my school also agree that they still don't know enough and obviously we know as we've been saying it's such a broad topic there is so much to learn so much to know so I think you know it's always going to be ongoing there's still always going to be something more we need to learn more about but yeah I'd say 
yeah, we're probably not given enough as a springboard to start us off, to be honest. Is it okay if I kind of add something to that? Because I, I, it makes total sense and it aligns with what I learned um, on my... Yeah, of course, uh, go for it. On my, sorry, it aligns with what I um, experienced in my teacher training. The thing that I that kind of... Uh, I find frustrating about reading across the country, the, the picture as far as I can see it, because naturally we're influenced by what we experience um, and our own, you know, what we see in our in the schools that we work with, et cetera. But what I think the thing that frustrates me is that if I, if, um, and again, this is just my personal point of view, but I think if I saw someone put together a presentation that talked about the most important things, just two hours worth, just two hours of the most important things that every single primary teacher needs to know, I would say that not uh, there are significant chunks of that presentation that wouldn't have been covered on my primary PGCE, which is um, given that this stuff isn't that is, is actually relatively old and occurred before uh, my time is again, like I say, still still slightly frustrating. Well, hopefully we can kind of, I guess, address some of those things because um, we're going to go to a, a quick ad break. But when we come back, um, Tara, you will appreciate this. I'm going to be the, the guinea pig and I will describe how I have taught reading at different stages over the years because some of it will shock you, Tara. There, is, there were some things that used to happen in, in reading lessons in some schools in some parts of the country that, um, you know, I'm sure... Chris will certainly be pulling his hair's hair out about when I describe my lessons, but I, I will be um, putting myself out there um, as the, the the what a bad one looks like, the opposite of a waggle, um, and 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 if we can discuss, then use that as an idea of, of kind of pulling apart what it what it should look like or what it could look like. Um, happy to stick around, Chris. Is that okay? And Tara, happy to stick around, yet? Yeah? Yeah, I'm looking forward to this next bit. Honestly, it will be like um, uh, the lessons from hell, uh, which I've taught many times, but I've survived everyone. I'm still here. I'm still teaching. Off we go to the adverts. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, Visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Boradar Paub, Kroisoi Abitawi. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, the Twilight Show, with me, Nathan Ginn. Um, I'm talking with Christopher Such, um, author of um, The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading, Tara Cross, uh, teacher and uh, 
Instagram based book aficionado, as I described it before. Um, we are just about to get into me describing some um, lessons, different approaches that I have been advised to use to teach reading. Um, welcome back, Chris. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Lovely. Sorry, I just like to check that you're still there. And uh, Tara, welcome back. Hello, thanks for having me. Um, Tara, I was going to ask, because I was talking to my sister about this, because I, as I say, we very close by, we grew up. Um, what secondary school did you go to? I went to Bottisham Village College. Bottisham. Do you know what? My, my, my son finds Bottisham the, the funniest word on the, ever. It, it, honestly, <laughs> every time we go past, he goes, ha, 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 Botty's hand. Oh, that's Botty's funny. Hand. I used to think that know. about Six Mile Bottom, which is quite close as Six Mile Bottom, of course, yep. Um, amazing place names in that part of uh, of Cambridgeshire. Um, yeah, no, I was a Neverhall boy, so I was uh, over over in the city centre, um, or nearer the city at least. Yeah, Neverhall. Um, but yeah, sorry, um, Chris, leaving you out of it completely. As a, as a Peterborough supporter, sorry, completely out of that, that conversation. Oh, no, it's all good. I recognise the name Bottisham. I'm sure I had the same... Um, interaction with the, the humorous names of uh, Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire as a child being driven around the area. Oh, just honestly, we go through and um, I, I, my, my wife as well, can't believe what some places are called. Um, Trumpington, that's the other one, finds it hilarious. Anything with a slightly, um, slightly childish meaning to it, I guess. Um, right. So we were going to describe, I was going to describe my um, my different approaches I've been advised to teaching. Now, this is my first one. This is back when I first started reading my NQT year. Um, and I would have a class and I would have um, ability tables um, because we had those as a thing. So, you know, um, all, you know, normally it would be circles. And because circle has one side, that, that was always your, your lowest ability table. And then you'd go up generally for however many sided shapes you need to get to the top. So normally a, a hexagon or a pentagon table, that would be your top table. And it was a very um, uh, unsubtle way of differentiating what they were by calling them shapes. But I guess everyone kind of saw through that quite quickly. Um, at each table, they would have a different book that they would be reading that was targeted at their reading level. Um, and um, I would spend a different day of the week with each table hearing them read and when I was not with them they could possibly be doing a reading comprehension based on the book or more often than not they were probably doing some kind of semi-meaningful filler work. Um, now Chris you you were probably trained around at the same time or certainly started teaching is that something you remember happening? Oh yes Carousel guided reading was uh, the bane of my existence when I first started teaching. Um, yeah, the idea that we would teach reading in a manner that um, firstly said to children, yeah, you are this ability, you are this ability, because you're, you're dead right about children seeing through that. But more importantly, that we would teach children in a manner that effectively said, I will only supervise and guide you and teach you for 20% of the week is... Yeah, it was absurd. And I think if we thought about doing that in any other area of teaching, like, you know, ma carousel mathematics or carousel history, we would immediately see through the uh, weaknesses of it. What's interesting is that I'm sure that this came about because of the misguided belief that it was particularly valuable to attempt to match 
texts to children. The interesting thing is that the research is fairly clear in that, well, it's more the absence of research, despite people searching for it for decades and decades, there's no decent evidence to suggest that once children are able to decode to a certain extent, that it's beneficial to target them with certain books, to find certain books that match their, let's call it zone of proximal development, that, that no evidence whatsoever. So we, end up have, we ended up having children on these ability tables doing carousel activities, most of the time not doing anything meaningful. I think you were generous when you were talking about semi-meaningful. I never got to semi-meaningful. It was They were largely meaningless activities, except for the brightest. Um, so yeah, and that was very much the tail wagging the dog in that situation, even though the tail was um, a, a misconception. Tara, um, what about if you, you know, you walked into a lesson now and saw that, what, what questions would you be asking the, the teacher, um, what what concerns would you have? What you know? What would you be thinking? Well, I'm actually probably going to shock you now, but um, I I used to work as a TA before I did my teacher training, and the school I worked in, they actually still did that. So uh, yeah, so I would have a group as the TA, and then the teacher would also have a group. But still, as you say, that meant only two groups out of the six. Uh, were actually doing anything slightly meaningful um, and even with that then you know I was just given the task there and then um, it was just to read a few pages with the children and then think of a few questions to ask them uh, there on the spot so yeah not meaningful at all and yeah it's shocking I think that actually that is clearly still happening in school. But I think, you know, Chris is right there. It's, it, these things are hard to kill off because, as I say, you know, I last year was a deputy head of a primary school and all of my training beyond anything I'd done um, additionally myself or any updates because I was a maths lead and then moved into senior leadership that way. So I didn't have a significant amount of English training, but that would mean I could get to deputy head, possibly head, and still, my entirety of my training had been based on, as Chris said, kind of a, a, a misconception. Just to kind of jump in yeah. there, I, the one thing I would note about these kind of carousel teaching activities is I had a conversation recently with um, a, a teacher who worked in a very, very small school. So um, her class was reception up to year three. And she described to me the way that she used carousel reading. And she said, okay, so if I don't do that, based on what I've got in my classroom, what do I do? And I ended up having, you know, admitting that, oh, actually, this is one of those rare circumstances where I think actually you don't have many other ways around a way of um, a solution to a particularly acute and rare issue. I think there's, with, with everything I would say about reading, in there there are probably a few things where there isn't an exception to the rule, but um, there, there's always the odd exception here or there. But you're right to say, just on your other point, that it's absolutely possible, and I would say quite common for people to become senior leaders uh, before they know really much about reading. I, I certainly did. I certainly was, a, was involved in leadership before I knew what I think is every leader should know about reading. Yeah, you know, and I guess that that is part of the the primary teaching as it is. I guess um, one of my concerns, more on top of that, is is what happens at secondary. I'm you know I'm in secondary base now, 
and we certainly um and, and post pandemic as well have more and more children i think who are behind in their reading in however we're defining that certainly reading ages are, that are lower i work specifically with children who are not engaging in school and there is a massive crossover between them having reading ages that are below because they haven't been engaged and actually reading is quite intensive time-wise i i would say to, to to get better at secondary teachers then secondary schools maybe not prepared at all for for this element um to to be able to support them reading and a quick question then and i guess i'll try this to chris might be able to answer this does reading learning to read change at what stage in your life you do it i will say you know, if a, if a child, I am now working with them at 16, do I use the same approaches in some sense to teach them to read as I would in a primary school? Sorry, I uh, <laughs> lost my connection there for a second. Um, yeah. Effectively, you use, yes, the same approaches. Now, there's, there's a sense of um, sensitivity involved with, say, attempting to use decodable text that um, might not be age appropriate and there are resources that you can find that will work your work their way around those but effectively there are a set of uh, there's, a, there's a bank of knowledge and a set of skills that all people will um, require in order to uh, learn to read so for example in order to begin to the process of decoding people will need a certain amount of understanding of english language which most children if not all the vast majority, at least at secondary school, will have, but they will also need the ability to, they'll need a, a bank of sound spelling correspondences or often called in England grapheme phoneme correspondences so they can begin the long haul of decoding that will slowly but surely um, move them towards fluency. And in short, teaching those to um, children who are four is somewhat different to teaching children who are say 15 or 16 but only in the the way that that might be delivered the, the interactions you might have with the children the underlying um content is is still the same learning to read if, if someone came to me as a 20 year old and said i know nothing of how to read where should i begin i can't decode i i haven't i've never been taught at all i would start with phonics I would start on the assumption that they had decent language comprehension. I'd start with phonics. I would ensure that they were listening to audiobooks as well and uh, engaging in conversation to develop their language comprehension. But effectively, it would be the same stuff in terms of supporting children, whatever their age, including young, young, um, young people up to kind of 14, 15, 16. If they cannot, if they don't have the fundamentals of reading, that's where we begin. Thank you. That actually is incredibly helpful for me in my current role. And sometimes I do just jump in and grab a little bit of CPD for myself during these shows and get a quick answer on a question. Now, here's my next one of what things that I have done in the past or been told to do. And I am, and as I say, no, no wonder we are as a profession somewhat confused about reading, I would say. Um, we'll see what you both think about this. And it is um, teaching comprehension and inference in particular through videos. So no reading of words on paper, video content that we would then infer from and then be able to say that that kid could tick inference. So um, let's go to uh, Tara first. 
is it have you heard of such a thing is this a thing that is currently done no i haven't heard of that that is really interesting um i mean i get it in the fact that yeah like i said from earlier you know looking at picture books even being able to infer um from pictures similar then with a video but then to tick that as a reading skill I don't think there's enough there they're not yeah they're not being taught how to find information within a text and how to use that skill with an actual text so yeah that's a weird one I would say it does come from a time when um, APP grids certainly were a thing and we were ticking off criteria and there would just be a criteria that said can infer you know and and so things did become a bit distinct um chris what about you oh it i've seen that i've probably done that at some point in my time it is nonsense um it, it speaks to a real misunderstanding about what reading comprehension is a very narrow understanding of what reading comprehension is and i understand if you'll let if you'll forgive me for blathering on a little bit this is kind of a bit of a hobby horse of mine we have this idea we have this idea across the profession or many people do that comprehension skills be they the skill of retrieval the skill of inference the skill of prediction that these are generic effectively you can learn them in one context and then they'll apply to another there is there is absolutely zero evidence to back up this idea there isn't there's there's even ev- there's no evidence even to suggest suggest that we can write particular questions that are or that's an inference question or that's a retrieval question or that's a prediction or that we can tell them apart when someone else has written questions like this even if you go to the national curriculum and you look at sats papers and you look at old questions that have been identified as oh this was an inference question this was a vocabulary question you know often they're identical <laughs> you know they're borderline identical so yes the idea of generic comprehension skills where this comes from effectively is um well there are a couple of places it comes from. Firstly, it comes from SATS papers and the idea of us being able to say, oh, okay, we, we've, we've got these areas that are going to be have marks awarded to them. So these must be generic skills that we can teach as such. They're not. You know, if, if you can infer from one sentence, one paragraph, one text, it doesn't then necessarily transfer to a different set of words, a different paragraph, a different text. And trying to endlessly teach children these generic skills as a thing on its own is um i think um based entirely on a misconception of what reading comprehension is reading comprehension is something much broader it is effectively once children are able to decode to a certain extent it is supporting children to understand as much as possible the entirety of their language the entirety of the the knowledge to be gained in the world the entirety of all the different texts and text structures that exist And because it's so broad, I think we end up relying on um, seemingly helpful canards like comprehension skills. Um, So, for example, I had a conversation, uh, I think Vipers was mentioned earlier in the episode, had a really interesting conversation with uh, with Rob Smith, the someone who is tightly associated with Vipers. And he's, you know, happy to state that the importance of things like inference and prediction as parts of individual lessons, but not as things to be taught as generic skills. So it's interesting to see how these things over the years have become misinterpreted, maybe because we desire simple answers to complex questions. I think you've just described most of my 
t- uh, my my early teaching career of wanting a simple answer to some really complex questions there um yeah definitely now my 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 final question of my my bad uh not bad but just my my possibly misguided at times um teaching approaches and actually i think tara is 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 a person i, I want to hear from on this as a book aficionado as i keep calling her um we had a um system that had to um once a child had um read a book they would um do a quiz online and i won't mention the system you know but uh, many exist i'm sure and um, that would then tell us how many days that the ch- child had read the book in and it would give you a reading speed um, and some questions so tick tick comprehension um but because of this system being in place the children had to finish any book they started because if they didn't finish it um, we it didn't get logged, and then though we didn't have their score and their reading speed and their hours and things, all of that stuff. So th- this is finishing a book that you don't like. Tara, what do you think? Yeah, that's really harsh. Um, I know there's so many children that they'll pick up a book and they'll say, no, no, I don't like it. And I always try and encourage them to at least read, well, in year five, to at least read the first two, three chapters to be able to see whether they like it or not. But if you're then trying to force them to read something that they really don't enjoy, they're not going to have that love for reading. They're not going to get through it quickly. They're just not going to enjoy it. And for me, that's a huge part of reading. So, yeah, I think that would be uh, really harsh on them. And, yeah, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I'm a cruel teacher that I am. But, that, you know, is it, some of these things exist for, you know, as we've met, said many times here now, I'm tail wagging the dog. Um, but, Chris, do you have to or is it better that you enjoy the book that you're reading is there is there evidence around that you know we keep saying love of reading is it a thing i think in terms of evidence i, I imagine enjoyment would be such a nebulous thing to attempt to measure that it would never really be something that could i, I mean obviously that we could you could use qualitative measures where you ask someone whether they generally enjoy reading and i think there is you know research to suggest that those that enjoy reading reading are better at it but obviously again picking apart um, causation in that is borderline impossible. Um, however, putting aside the need to, you know, the functional side of becoming a reader and becoming a better reader, just in its own sake, you know, enjoying books and enjoying particular whatever kind of book, you know, is your thing, um, is is worthwhile in its own sake, for its own sake. And the idea of children being, I think Tara puts it beautifully, the idea of uh, children having to have um, finish books that they obviously have not taken to is uh, unfortunate. I also liked what Tara said there about the fact that yes, there are children that will pick up a book, read the first few pages, put it back, and they just go through this endless cycle. And so sometimes we have to support children and say to children, "Well, I, I would like you to really, you know, give this one the first chapter." So I think, yeah, I think Tara really hit the nail on the head with that one. Um, sorry, I'm just reading a text that um, has, has been sent in and it says um, my my middle person picked up Miss, Mr. Such's book and wouldn't put it down. She even took it to school. She's year six. So a, po- a little bit of positive praise there in the text. 
um, about um, you know, enjoying reading and such like. And it does take us on a perfect segue. We have to go to the news. But when I come back, I really want to know, and this will be um, the key for me, I want to know what is a good book then? Um, so, um, Tara, you have to come back and tell me your opinions on what you think makes a good book. Yes. And Chris, again, really excited to hear about um, what you're happy to stick around and tell me what makes a good book. Yes, I'd love to. Fab stuff. Well, we're going to the news and we will see you all on the other side. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Megan Goods. This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. A worrying trend on social media app TikTok has seen teachers across the country targeted in videos. The content contains unfounded allegations of sexual misconduct and uses offensive insults and homophobic slurs. The social media company has been written to by the Association of School and College Leaders, who demand TikTok take immediate steps to remove the content. Jeff Barton, the General Secretary of the ASCL, has spoken out, saying he is deeply concerned that a number of offensive and defamatory videos have been posted on the TikTok platform targeting members of school staff. Although these posts appear to be in clear contravention of TikTok's community guidelines, it appears that, in the majority of cases, no action has been taken by TikTok to remove them after a complaint has been made. The union has written to TikTok demanding it take immediate steps to prevent posts of this nature appearing on the platform. Barton continued, saying material of this nature is deeply upsetting for the school and college staff who were targeted, and we strongly urge those responsible for this material to desist immediately. School and college staff have worked tirelessly and in extremely difficult circumstances throughout the course of the pandemic. Imagine how they feel to be the subject of spiteful and nasty videos on a social media platform. Those responsible should show more respect, and TikTok should show more care. The videos that feature pictures of teachers, videos from school websites or YouTube channels, and photoshopped images have been viewed millions of times. TikTok has responded with a statement claiming, Our community guidelines make clear that we do not tolerate content that contains bullying or harassment, statements targeting an individual or hateful speech or behaviour, and we remove content that violates these guidelines. That was your latest Teachers Talk Radio News. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. 
Boradar Pal, Chriso Yabatawi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Swansea. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, the Twilight Show, with me, Nathan Ginn, on this Wednesday night. We're joined by Christopher Such, uh, author of The Art and Science of Teaching Primary Reading, and Tara Cross, um, teacher and um, book advisor, I want to say, or um, uh, on Instagram, sharing their thoughts on what is reading and getting into what is a good book in this section. Um, I will say, this TikTok thing has infuriated me. Um, if you are a member of staff, don't um, don't search for them. It, it will do you no good um, looking for a, a member of your senior leadership team. It will hopefully be protecting you and the school by doing it. And, you know, I can tell you now, I have posted things on um, other social media websites um, where copyright infringement has happened or been perceived to be happening, and they've been taken down within the hour. Um, I know that if you tried to live stream a pay-per-view football match, it'd be taken down within the hour. So it really infuriates me that they can't do something to protect teachers and schools. Sorry, rant over. Um, (laughs) Emma Williams in the uh, chat there saying, I wouldn't know how to look for something on TikTok. Just don't. Honestly, uh, it, it, it's, it's a rabbit hole not to get drawn into. But we are here with Chris um, Such and Tara Cross. We're talking about reading. I asked just before the news, um, what makes a good book? And um, we've had some text in. Um, Harry has texted in saying, for learners of English, it's really hard to get students hooked when they don't read in their own language. And also that it's very hard to foster a love of reading without the support of parents. Um, Joe has texted in saying, not sure if this helps, um, it says a good book is the ability to hold uh, the reader in without them wanting to put it down. She's got a year eight who says a book needs to have a great introduction and a year R um, that says it needs to have a moomin, moomins in it. Yep, that'd work for mine too. I've got a year R and I'm pretty sure a book with some moomins in it would certainly engage them for a while. Um, so um, let's go to uh, Tara first. Tara, um what for you makes a good book and I know that's a broad question but what makes a good book for you what's important um I actually totally agree with uh Joe who texted in what her children said um for me it needs to be gripping I want it to be so I don't want to put it down um I think it's always great when it's unpredictable as well I hate when you can already predict what's going to happen and then it happens um so yeah good plot twists um always do it for me and I think like what we were saying earlier if a book starts well and you're you're you dive in straight away and it's already gripping from the start that's great and especially for children as we were saying earlier if you know if they're reading the first few pages and they're bored already and don't want to read the rest that's not great so yeah it's got to grip you from um so you're going for for fiction there as as your book your ideal book there are other books are available your ideal book for a perfect book would be a fiction a gripping fiction book yeah definitely um i mean if we're going down a non-fiction route though in that case i would say it needs to be full of pictures, full of interesting facts. And again, I think that's what would be ideal for children as well if they were reading non Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Um, for me, my non-fiction would have to have a map in the front of it. Any non-fiction book with the map in the front of it, I love. But as a child, I read non-fiction. 
you know as a young boy learning to read i was obsessed with guinness book of records um nat book of natural disasters those are the ones that got me um and, and, and again very personal but that's where it is interesting as well just before we throw across to chris that you didn't go for the the um i guess ofsted answer of a book that is closely linked to the phonics they are learning in class uh, no one yet has texted that in either as their ideal answer so um chris what's your idea of a good book obviously it depends on the purpose going back to what you were saying there about the um decodable books that Ofsted um recommend I, I think part of that is the need for decoding practice but putting that stuff aside if we're talking about a book that I personally enjoy um I I'm looking at um I, I like sci-fi fiction personally. If we're talking about um, stuff that relates to what makes a great book to read to children, I think there are a number of factors. I think combining the familiar with the wondrous, when when a book can pull that off, that's um, that's usually the sign that something's going well. I think often in terms of what makes a book gripping for children to build on what Tara um, said there I think what I find makes a book gripping for children is one that kind of connects to their emotions in some way ideally as well as a sense of wonder and curiosity but I often find that the best books that I read with children are a chance for them to explore something that they might not otherwise be able to explore in a relatively safe environment be it um, danger be it adventure be it um, certain emotions where we see characters who are going through um, tragedies. Um, there's a glorious book called Badger's Parting Gift, which um, a colleague of mine, an ex-colleague of mine, um, talked about as having supported her, and she was given it um, by a teacher when she was young um, to support her when she um, had um, suffered a bereavement. Um, and so this shows the sort of things that books can do, particularly if they allow us to explore something, as I say, in a safe environment. If I may say one more thing, there's a, there's a wonderful um, literacy expert um, who talks about uh, literacy that um, explores different cultures from America called Rudine Sims Bishop. It's become a bit of a cliche because of how, um, how, how often her phrase is used, but it is glorious where it talks about great books um, and the reading curriculum that we offer children should offer uh, mirror, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And by that, um, she means children should be able to see themselves in it, should be able to see out into the wider world, but also with this sliding glass door idea, they should be able to, through their imagination, go and explore in some way. I know that's all fiction. I also do love nonfiction books. Uh, Bill Bryson's um, A Short History of, I think, Nearly Everything. There's a children's version of that, which is glorious. Oh, wow, right. That I'm looking for because I loved the, the, the adult version of that. That, that. that kind of thing is right on my street, but a children's version of that sounds um, wonderful. Um, and, and Chris, he, this is a question I guess I'll throw to, to Tara in a minute who's doing it. What about, I would turn them self-help books. I don't know if you've read Marcus Rashford's book. I know there's uh, a Matthew Syed version that's similar. Um, uh, do they fit in? They are, they're, are they providing a different purpose? I think I can't say I've read either of those two. Um, I, I, I definitely, um, however, a student, um, I know a student in my school has recently dived into Marcus Rashford's book. Um, her mother was uh, keen to tell me. Um, so 
I, I do think that there is absolutely room to explore the lives of interesting individuals, inspirational individuals in the case of Marcus Rashford um, through through literature. I, I think one of the key things is to provide that sense of variety so that children can find something of you know their home in books, what they particularly like. Of course, we then have to nudge them into different directions. We want them to explore what we, we don't. We want them to um, to see what is out there and what there is to offer. But we must have that variety to allow children to explore things like Marcus Rashford's book, which I, I know I must check out sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tara, I'm going to throw this across to you. I, I want to talk about classics. Um, I have read, for you know, reasons unbeknownst to me, maybe as part of my education, maybe because they were the books that were available, I've read a lot of what we would term as the, the classics. You know, I've read uh, Frankenstein, I've read uh, Jekyll and Hyde, I've read Treasure Island. My favourite book is The Count of Monte Cristo. I'm keen for my um, son to read The Count of Monte Cristo. I know that there would be people who um, see it as a cultural capital thing, if that's the right word, that we should be promoting these classics. Um, what do you think about classic books as opposed to current ones that are written in the current period? Yeah, um, that is kind of quite a hot topic, I think, at the moment, quite a debate that um, I've seen on sort of Twitter and Instagram. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. For me... Um, I did read quite a few of the classics when I was younger. Um, however, they're not something I would choose to pick up now. And for me, it's more that some of them are quite outdated. Um, and I think books that are coming out now are a lot more current, obviously. Um, and there are so many fantastic books that are coming out at the moment that I think actually have more important messages in for children um they have characters in that are more diverse that are kind of more appropriate for children to read about and be able to see themselves in um but then yeah i do also see that there are some brilliant classics that have such wonderful storylines that are fantastic that children will still love today so yeah i am in two minds um, I, I'll go back to um, Christopher, to Chris. Um, I have learned a lot of words through reading. I, I read a lot as a kid. I learned a lot of words through reading, which hence I don't know how to pronounce a lot of words because I didn't hear them first. But my vocabulary, I would say, is quite broad and, and strong because of my reading. Is, is reading a good way to, for us to develop that with kids? Are we closing the word gap with... Um, disadvantaged pupils by getting them to read a lot of variety. Is that something that would work? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I know there's a decent amount of controversy around the idea, the very idea itself of the word gap, because the original, I think, Hart and Risley paper of 95 was then pushed back against because of some arguably exaggerated numbers. It didn't take into account bits and pieces. But um, that said, it absolutely is the case that, um, on average, um, people who are from disadvantaged backgrounds are less like are more likely to have experienced linguistic um, disadvantages to go alongside that. So, is reading a good way around it? Yeah, absolutely. You know that we there's this that 
one of the most common things that's talked about in education, the Matthew effect absolutely applies to reading. The more we read, the more we enjoy it, the more we enjoy it, the more we read and the better our vocabulary becomes. And then, of course, we enjoy what we read more because we have that broader vocabulary. It's interesting you mentioned about the idea of um, not being able to uh, pronounce words. Uh, there's often a bit of uh, snobbishness about when people say, like, like, you know, when I was a teenager and I went to university and I said, like, quinoa instead of quinoa and hyperbole instead of hyperbole. There's, there's, a, there's often snobbishness about that. I'm often, um, I feel like I've found a kindred spirit when someone mispronounces a word like that because I think you know that word from reading, not from your necessarily the advantages of your background. So, um, yeah, I think... Yeah, it's definitely a way to uh, support um, language development. And part of that is, of course, vocabulary. Um, Joe's just texted in, in the chat saying, um, well, by Chester, Bista um, as a place name. Um, Harry's texting about saying that his um, wife and brother still say, Harry, I, I can't, you've written the actual word. I don't know if he means they still say <laughs> hyperbole. I don't know which one you're saying that they mean. Oh, hyperbole. Yeah, because obviously I'm I'm having to read it off the text. It's um I'm it's I'm unsure how to pronounce it myself. Um, but certainly, and I guess place names as well. Um, my word, being here in Wales, um, the accent, um, certainly, and some of the letters and 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 uh, consonant clusters are different entirely as well. Um, Tara, what are your thoughts on? I guess that exposure and learning words, learning culture through reading. Yeah, I think um, in terms of vocabulary, from my experience, children love it. They love learning new words. Um, and I also really like to model when I can't pronounce a word or I don't know how to read a word um, because I think it's good for them to see it's not just them who are struggling. You know, we, we all come across words that we can't pronounce or don't know how to read. Um, so, yeah, so exposing them to more vocabulary, I think, is only going to be better. Okay, so we have spent a bit of time and um, we have talked about what can good um, reading, what good books can look like, what they can do. We've talked about my terrible lessons. And I guess this is the bit then where I want to know again, for me personally, but also hopefully for our listeners, what to do if a child is perceived to be struggling with reading and whether that be a phonics test score that comes back, which I have, you know, my things about a comprehension test, a SATS paper, a reading age, so, uh, they, they're, they're not picking up books. You know, this child is not reading. How do we improve that situation for them? Um, so let's start, Chris, if you don't mind. It naturally depends on exactly what the um, difficulty is that the child's having. Um, if, for example, you say, you know, a phonics uh, assessment comes back and suggests that there is either a gap in a significant gap in the, the code knowledge that they would need to begin decoding successfully or um, there's um, issues relating to phonemic skills, say, blending, segmenting, or other forms of phonemic manipulation. If either or both of those things are an issue, then targeting one or both of those through a phonics intervention is almost certainly the place to begin. It's absolutely the case, though, that a child can have a decent bank of um, 
graphene phoneme correspondences and the skills of how to use them can have that under their belt and still not be a fluent reader, still be significantly behind their peers because they haven't um, had the chance to do lots of decoding. They haven't learned about the English spelling system. They haven't learned about uh, English orthography through lots of reading, in which case perhaps uh, one-to-one -one reading or um, repeated oral reading might be um, the, the, the most useful thing to help. But it might also not relate to decoding or fluency. It can be that a child lacks the language comprehension skills. So it might be that they lack vocabulary or um, knowledge of the world. Now, these things, I think, are trickier to tackle in something like an intervention. Really, what you need to do for these children is to just try and support them with a, um, a purposeful and well thought out curriculum and with lots of reading through the school day. So in short, how we best support children depends on where exactly the issues uh, lie. Um, and you talked a little bit there, I guess, about reading throughout the school day. So I could see my reading uh, in other lessons, my, a spread out approach to reading rather than taking that child and okay you know reading with them 10 minutes for 10 minutes a day didn't work I'll read with them for 20 minutes a day I'll read with them for 30 minutes a day I think if you have the opportunity to support children one-to-one -one, be it through phonics or fluency or hearing them read one to and hearing like I say hearing them read one-to-one -one, nothing that that is an incredibly valuable way to support them with their reading regardless of their um where that reading issue lies um, if, you, if you have the opportunity to work with them one-to-one, -one, then absolutely go for it. It's worth noting that when it comes to issues with decoding or issues relating to fluency, it's very difficult for children to improve there if they aren't guided, if they're not supervised. In, for example, independent reading, and by this I mean independent reading of texts, not, say, picture books, but independent reading of, um, of books by children who are really struggling still to decode and need that guidance as they go is unlikely to be beneficial. But yeah, if in doubt, one-to-one -one support, if you can do it, just target the things that are most troubling that student. And Tara, what's in your current kind of bag of tricks for how you're going to um, you know, support a child to do better with their reading? What sort of things are you doing at the moment? Well, I feel like I'm just learning so much from Chris. Um, there's not much more to add, uh, but I'd say something else I, I think is important is ensuring that you're finding things that the child enjoys to read about so that they have got enjoyment in it. They don't find it as an onerous task. Oh, we're reading again. You know, I'm not any good at this. I don't enjoy it. So helping them to improve, I think, yeah, needs to kind of stem from finding something they're going to like reading. Um yeah obviously I'm coming from a year five perspective there um but yeah for me I think that's kind of going to help massive engaging with them and uh, you know Chris mentioned the Matthew effect there because it is you know we have to do you you have to get through a number of books to get better at reading you you have to read unfortunately um and I, I get that I would assume is easier when the child is enjoying it they feel more comfortable confident doing it it's going to be easier for everyone. Now, we've had a message in, a text in, um, and I can answer this in an incredibly uh, free-spirited way because um, I have no skin in the game. I'm not a primary lead of any sort anymore, um, so I can answer it 100% honesty, and then I'll, I'll throw it across um, maybe to Chris to see if he's got a slightly more um, uh, 
considered take on it. But Joe is texting saying, what do you do when a PSC comes back as less than a pass? Now, I'm going to assume that, Joe, as a phonic screening um, check um, comes back as less than a pass, but they decode well when reading and show a real understanding of the text they're reading. So I would unpick this to, as me, um, uh, I'd ask myself, first of all, the question of what am I doing the phonic screening check for? which is, am I using it as a diagnostic tool or am I uh, using it as a benchmark pass rate for the school, which sometimes it is? Um, and then I'd, I, I guess that end part of that sentence, I'd knock off about the, the understanding the text they're reading, because for me, this phonic screening check isn't about understanding. It's about um, decoding. And, um, and so I'd, I'd kind of narrow it down that way um, and maybe use uh, some kind of diagnostic tool. Um, Chris, what do you think to that? Yeah, I think the the phonic screen check is a screening check is a diagnostic tool. I think a lot really comes down to what we mean or, or what Joe means by um, decoding well. If, for example, the child in question um, is sounding out throughout the word, is doing so accurately and isn't, you know, as is occasionally the case, looking at the first couple of words and then, oh, sorry, first couple of letters and then guessing the rest, which is absolutely a possibility um, with, with certain children. Then if, if they're not doing that, then I would suspect that the phonic screening check in this case was just a test that in, under these circumstances just didn't get to the nub of their actual decoding um, skills. It's which which could be the case. We all have good days and bad days when it comes to um, a test. But I'd be very careful uh, in what I termed good decoding. I would be tempted to co to continue occasionally throw throwing out to them a kind of um, words with which you think can be decoded using the kind of um, knowledge that they should have, the kind of grapheme phoning correspondences that they should have, but that won't be familiar to the child. If they are then looking at the first couple of letters, so a, a word like um, affront, so A-double-F-R-O-N-T, if they've seen the word front and they, if they say, saw that and said, oh, it's affable, it's unlikely for a child to say affable, but if they say they decode the first part and then guess at the rest, rather than trying to um, use their decoding skills, then I would be wary and I'd be very careful to say, this might be um, when when we're working one to one or in a small group with this child. I want to really make sure that they are using the skills and knowledge that they've learned through phonics and through reading throughout the word. That's a yeah a key thing to know. I'd say, and, and I would say from personal experience that I found as a teacher that that gap between when they were moving from sounding out words or where you could clearly see that they were still kind of sounding out as they read to when they were what appeared to be reading fluently or at least reading faster without clearly sounding out, I found that the hardest to teach because it, I found it the hardest to diagnose and um, where the issues were. Yeah, it's, it, 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 um, it's, it's, sorry, sorry, it's very, yeah, very difficult to deal with. Sorry, I'll fire it back. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's hard. Reading's hard, guys. We, we have come to that conclusion. Um, now we are going to pop one more set of ad breaks and then when we come back it'll be final thoughts from uh 
Christopher Such, Tara Cross and myself on reading uh, and, and all of the good, all of the tough uh, and where we should all be going next. So off we go to the ads. Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DfE-validated programmes to help you? Read Write Ink Phonics, Floppies Phonics, and the brand new Essential Letters and Sounds. Essential Letters and Sounds will get all your children reading well, quickly, using phonics books you may already have in your classroom. Developed by the Knowledge Schools Trust English Hub, it's affordable, easy to use, and makes teaching phonics with letters and sounds more effective. Whatever your school's phonics needs, Oxford has the solution. To find out more and receive support from your expert local educational consultant, visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics. Live from Swansea, this is The Twilight Show with Nathan Ginn on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone, welcome to Swansea, welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. Uh, the Twilight Show on Wednesday night with me, Nathan Ginn. Um, we have been talking about reading. If you've missed the start of the show, you can always go to, um, as, a, as we say, ttradio.org slash listen back. Search for the show. You can search for other shows as well. If you've missed any of our host shows or in the little search bar there, if you've got a specific topic that you're looking for, for instance, reading, you can type reading in there and it'll pull up all of our historic shows um, that uh, had the topic of reading in them and, and you'll be able to listen to them or any topic. Um, so, as I say, I'm here with uh, Christopher Such um, and I am here with Tara Cross. We have been talking about reading. Um, I've been sharing my um, mistakes uh, that I have made in the past. I've been sh- They've been sharing what makes a good book. Um, Chris has kindly been explaining to me CPD that I really should have had uh, about 15 years ago when I came into the profession. Um, and so I guess that takes us to our final thoughts um, from each of you. I'd like to hear um, a hope, I wish, I think, for what teachers listening, what the profession might do next with regards to reading that may improve the situation for for children in the future, which is why we're doing this, um, as we go forward. So, um, Chris, what are your kind of hopes, your advice to the profession, your message to put out there to the listeners about reading? How long have I got? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) like the sound of my own voice, obviously. I'll try and be brief. Um, I would say the key things that um, aren't currently, in my experience, addressed as well as they could be relate to fluency and the teaching of reading comprehension. Um, But I'll start by saying if you work in a secondary school, consider learning about phonics if you are finding there are lots of children who struggle with the basics of decoding. But thinking about on the primary level, I would say that we need to pay more attention to those initial stages where children are developing the early stages of fluency, making sure that perhaps there's repeated oral reading and lots of um, decoding taking place in year two and year three, and that it's guided and supported in the classroom. That quantitative element is essential. The other thing I would say is 
I'd really love it if the profession could move towards, or I should say, move away from the teaching of comprehension as generic comprehension skills with SAT-style questions and move towards the shared exploration of wonderful books and other texts, which is a much more, I think, authentic and effective way to teach reading comprehension. Fantastic. Well, that is a, a lovely and, and well done brief uh, wrap up there. Um, Tara, you know, starting out in the profession now or, or early on in the profession, certainly compared to the old dogs like me, um, what do you see something that you hopefully will be driving forward for us um, for our children um, what are your goals for reading um, and uh, the, the the improvement of reading for all um, again I think I'm learning so much here from Chris so I'll leave the technicalities to him um, but for me uh, yeah really encouraging and fostering a love of reading um, that's something I'm definitely working on in my school and in my classroom, um, just ensuring that children, you know, are enjoying what they read. They're not coming into a reading lesson and thinking, oh, no, here we go again. Um, you know, they're going home and they're wanting to pick up a book. Um, they're finding something that they that they like to read um, so that they don't want to put it down. They want to carry on with it. Um, because we know that there's so many skills that they will will learn from that. Um, and I think as teachers, we really kind of need to show that we love reading as well and that we enjoy it and that we do it too, um, just so that they can see and um, that we're modelling it and that we're excited about it. And then, you know, that can rub off on them and uh, inspire them to enjoy it definitely I couldn't agree more with all of those things for me I will pick up on one of Chris's points there about secondary school colleagues I now find myself at the you know the the sharp end of what happens or what can happen if we don't get it right early on um, and how disengaging not being able to read can be for for children in secondary school when the secondary schools often are built on an assumption that children can access the texts in history, access the texts in geography, read the questions in maths and understand them. Um, it can cause so many problems that are so hard to unpick that I think we have to invest time in it and we have to support colleagues to understand really how important it is and how to do it well. So that would be my message. Um, so it has been wonderful talking to you both. Um, Christopher, um, I hope your football team loses continually and until we may see them next at the Abbey Stadium. Sorry, I'm not sure if that was aimed at me. I've just... Um... Uh, my internet connection went in and out there. I apologise. I heard Abbey oh, Stadium and I assumed it was a football reference. <laughs> so I assumed that was aimed at me. That was all I timed. got. Yeah, perfectly <laughs> timed as I was being uh, wishing your team the worst of luck. Um, oh, that's for, fair. For, for next time we may we may meet. And thank you so much for coming on. You know, I will echo Tara's comments about how interesting and, uh, you know, enlightening it is to hear this. Um, did you want to give your book a quick plug? Oh, I, I, it's, I think you've been very generous in plugging it already. I, what I'd like to do is perhaps point towards a free video uh, that's available on YouTube um, for, via the 
If you go to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, which is a wonderful podcast made by Kieran Mackle, if you type that into Google and phonics, you'll find there is a free video aimed at secondary teachers I've made. It's about 40 minutes long. I can't promise that it's particularly wonderful, but for those looking for a, a brief introduction to phonics uh, who are of a secondary level or otherwise, um, perhaps consider giving that a go. And, and thanks so much for having me on the show and uh, tolerating my ramblings. <laughs> Uh, incredibly interesting ramblings and yeah as I say I have um, read the book the, the first chapter um, I, I really found engaging and it talked about the, the history of um, written language I guess or reading as, as a thing and and it was just something that I again had never had access to um, training and something that I think is incredibly important. Um, Tara thank you for coming on Thank you for having me. No, thanks so much. Um, Not been too painful for you? (laughs) Not at all. No, I've learned so much. Definitely use this as a CPD opportunity without a doubt. Well, that's why we're here. As I say, it is a a, a staff room. It is a bumping into colleagues. It is for everyone. It's teachers talking about what teachers are doing. Uh, And so it's lovely to hear from you. Um, You know, I may even bump into you next time I'm visiting my parents down that neck of the woods. They still live that way. Um, So um, I had a text in there from Joseph just saying, thank you. This was super interesting. I'll agree. So from me here at Teachers Talk Radio is Nostar. Good night from here in Swansea. And uh, we will see you all again this time next week. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.